And that's Genesis 1, starting at verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God, God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. And God said, Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse, and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening, and there was morning, the second day. And God said, Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, Let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit, in which is their seed, each according to its kind, on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit, in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the third day. And God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons, and for days and years, and let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day, and the lesser light to rule the night, and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, Let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every ringed, winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters and the seas and let birds multiply on the earth. And there is evening and there is morning, the fifth day. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things, and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Good afternoon. I'd like us to begin by imagining that we are uh, one of the children of Israel journeying through the wilderness to the promised land. And it's evening time. We've all gathered around the campfire. 
And we've managed to persuade old Uncle Moses to tell us some stories about the past. So all the children pipe up and ask, tell us about how many frogs there were that died during the plagues, Uncle Moses. Uh, no, I don't want to hear about that. I want to hear about when Jacob fought with God, Uncle Moses. No, 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 tell us about Judah and Tamar. No, 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 tell us how many of the Egyptians died in the Red Sea when you crossed the Red Sea. And as old Uncle Moses begins to uh, make excuses about age appropriateness and wonder whether it might be bedtime and any parents are going to come and collect their children from this free crash that he's providing, one child pipes up at the back and says, Uncle Moses, was there anything before old great-great-great-great-great-grandfather Abraham? Or was he like the first person who ever lived? And the other children say, yeah, yeah, tell us about that. What was there before great-great-great-grandfather Abraham? Was there anything at all? And old man Moses strokes his long white beard. Of course, he has a long white beard in our imaginations. And he chuckles and says, okay, children, why don't I tell you about what happened in the very beginning, long before great-grandfather Abraham was even born, when there was just God? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. Now, the reason I've tried to get us to imagine that scenario to begin with is to appreciate that Genesis chapter 1 was written as a backstory, specifically the backstory to Abraham later on in the book of Genesis, because that's often not the light in which we read this chapter. It's a very famous chapter of the Bible, as you know, it's captured the minds of uh, poets and scientists and artists and all sorts down through the ages. But it's also a chapter that we tend to come to with a particular set of questions about the age of the universe and so on. It's a controversial chapter. Everybody knows that Christians disagree on questions to do with how old the universe is from Genesis 1. And because of that, we can often come to this chapter and treat it a little bit like it's an encyclopedia entry. So let's say you go to Wikipedia and you want to find out how long ago the Big Bang was, you might then turn to Genesis chapter 1 and see what Genesis has to say. Or you watch a David Attenborough documentary about evolution, and you think, well, I'll have a look at Genesis chapter 1 and see what it says about evolution. But there's a problem with that, which is that this chapter was never meant to be used as a sort of encyclopedia entry to answer those kinds of questions. It was written as a backstory. And there's a danger that if we come to any text with the wrong set of questions, it's easy to miss what it was actually trying to say. And we also might come away with answers that it wasn't really trying to give. So before we get into the detail of this passage, we're going to take a minute just to get our heads around what this chapter is even doing here in the Bible and how we're supposed to read it the way that it was intended. Now, if you pick up the book of Genesis and read through the whole thing at a run, which you might like to do on holiday sometime, perhaps, you can tell pretty quickly that the, the whole book is one long narrative, not a collection of pieces of information like in an encyclopedia. It's a narrative that runs through the ancient generations. There's this repeated phrase, 
that comes up again and again, beginning in chapter two, that goes like this. These are the generations of dot, 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 or this is the book of the generations of dot, dot, dot. So, and then it takes you through a kind of ancient genealogy. So in chapter five, you have the generations of Adam, and then you get Adam and his descendants. And then in chapter six, you have the generations of Noah, and you go through Noah and his descendants. In a way, it's a little bit confusing that the modern uh, editors of the Bible have put the chapter divisions in where they have, because that phrase sort of breaks the narrative up into uh, chapters or even books as you go through, moving through these ancient generations. And every so often, the author pauses to tell us a little bit about a key character along the way. Although not very much, interestingly. You cover vast periods of time in chapters 2 to 11 and only hear a little bit about a few characters. So Adam and Eve only get a chapter and a half and only say a few lines, for example. Uh, Noah gets slightly more, only about four chapters. Not very much. But then suddenly, when you get to the generations of Terah and his son Abraham in chapter 11, it's like the brakes are suddenly slammed on and the lens is focused in. The next 40 or so chapters of Genesis are devoted to just four generations, Abraham and his immediate descendants, Isaac, Jacob, and Jacob's children. So it's perfectly clear as you read through the book at a run, that the bit that the author really wants to focus on and draw out is the Abraham bit, him and his children. Now, already, that begins to put a little bit of perspective on the creation account right at the start. If you're to ask your friends in the office or at school what they thought the book of Genesis was about, I imagine many of them would say it's about the creation of the world. But actually, it's mostly not about that. That's about 150th of the whole book. It's mostly about Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Jacob's children. In fact, later on in the story, the author spends about as much time explaining Jacob's goat breeding methods as he does the creation of the entire universe. You, uh, you don't learn anything about the dinosaurs, but you get a not insignificant amount of detail about spotted and speckled goats. And actually, it shouldn't surprise us that the author is more interested in Jacob's goats than the dinosaurs. Because as you read on through the Bible, you realize that the Abraham narrative is the beginnings of a much greater narrative that runs throughout the whole thing. So, for example, when you turn to Exodus, the second book of the Bible, you can see right away that it just simply picks up where Genesis left off and the narrative just kind of carries on rolling. This is an oversimplification, of course, but the rest of the Old Testament is basically about what happens to Abraham's children, how God rescues them out of slavery, how he makes a covenant with them, how he puts this great global plan into action through them, and then, confusingly, how the story doesn't seem to quite go the way everyone expected towards the end, leaving the Old Testament on a bit of a cliffhanger. But all that begins with Abraham right back in Genesis chapter 11, when God chose him and made some foundational promises to him. That's the start of chapter 12. And so therefore, the story of Abraham and his generations is really the beginnings of the narrative of the rest of the Bible. And so it shouldn't surprise us if that's the focus of the book of Genesis, the first book. Genesis chapters 2 to 11 before that, therefore, act as a kind of backstory up to Abraham, just pausing on key characters along the way, but covering a vast period. And chapter 1, our chapter for today, is a bit like a prologue right at the start of all of that. 
It sets a foundation in place before you get to the narrative that then leads up to Abraham. Now, if you struggle to follow all that, I put a little diagram on your handouts to hopefully uh, clarify it a little bit. So therefore, whilst Genesis chapter 1 might be a notoriously controversial chapter, it wasn't intended to be read as a sort of encyclopedia entry telling you about how the world was made or how long it took or anything like that. It was supposed to be read as part of the backstory to Abraham. Now, that doesn't mean that it's unimportant, of course. It's very important. But it's important because it tells us some foundational truths that are relevant to Abraham and the rest of the Bible story when we get to it, not because it's trying to tell us everything that we might want to know about the creation of the universe. If it's a backstory, we can expect it to be selective about what it tells us. Which means that although we may have all sorts of interesting and important questions about the world, exactly how old it is and that kind of thing, we need to be aware that Genesis 1 might not be able to answer all of those questions as fully as we might like. When you think about it, the question, how long did the universe take to make, doesn't seem, well, it might be interesting to cosmologists, but it doesn't seem massively relevant to Abraham and the story that follows. And so it's possible that the author wasn't intending to be precise about that part of the account. That sort of thing happens all the time when you're trying to cover something very big in a brief and pithy and possibly poetic kind of way. So, for example, I was watching a little uh, YouTube video the other day um, that some animators have put together about the evolution of man. And it kind of, they'd done this beautiful little storyboard of this man kind of going through a desert and becoming more upright and learning to gather resources and make tools and so on and so on. Now, the YouTube comments section of any video is often a place where you find the wildest opinions that you can find on Earth. And yet, no one seemed to find it surprising in the comments section that the evolution of man only took 30 seconds, according to this video. Because we all instinctively understood that that bit had been oversimplified, the timescale was oversimplified. In fact, as you watched the video, you couldn't really say from it how long it actually took. And possibly, that could be the case for Genesis chapter 1 as well. We might not need to make up our minds, one way or the other, exactly how long it took. Instead, the question that the passage invites us to ask is this. If the book of Genesis is mainly about Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Jacob's goats, and so on and so on, then what was it about the creation of the world that we needed to know before all of that? In this brief little prologue at the start, what is it about creation that is so fundamental to understanding Abraham and his children and the Exodus and the rest of the Bible story. And I think there are several things, but three of the biggest are these, that there was one God who made everything, that he has a purpose, and that the world that he made is a good world. One God with a purpose who's made a good world. And we're going to be exploring that a little bit more over the next three weeks, focusing on the first of those points and verses 1 to 25 this week, the world was made by one God. Now, many of you who come along to the RML Bible studies on a Tuesday night will be familiar with the exercise that we put you through where we get you to kind of look for repeated words or phrases within a passage. It's a good way to kind of begin to get a sense of what might be important within the passage and what isn't quite so important. I wonder if you noticed as Jodie was reading through the passage quite how often God is mentioned 
in Genesis chapter 1. His name comes up about uh, 25 times in 25 verses, unless I miscounted. The whole thing reads as if he is the focal actor of it all, and you're busy watching a kind of master artist or engineer at work. The editors of the uh, ESV uh, translation have given this chapter the title, The Creation of the World, which seems fair enough at first, but I don't think that it's quite right. This chapter isn't about the creation of the world, it's about God creating the world. Do you see the difference? It's as much about him doing it as it is about what he makes. And there's more repetition than just that. As we go through the stages of creation, there's a pattern that starts to emerge that you probably noticed. Firstly, God declares, let there be, and then the thing that he declares happens, and then usually the author adds in, um, uh, and it was so, just in case we were in any doubt. So in verse 3, and God said, let there be light, and it was so. Verse 6, and God said, let there be an expanse, and it was so. Verse 9, and God said, let the waters be gathered, and it was so. Verse 11, and God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, and it was so. Verse 14, and God said, let there be lights in the expanse, and it was so. Verse 20, and God said, let the waters swarm, and it was so. Verse 24, and God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures, and it was so. Did you see the pattern? This chapter isn't about the creation of the world. It's about God declaring that creation should happen. It all happens according to the will of the one God. And you might think, okay, well, that's a little bit pedantic, but it's absolutely central, actually. It's not pedantic at all. It's really important because in the ancient world that Abraham came from, that's not what people thought about the world. In the British Museum, you can find several old dusty tablets that come from ancient Mesopotamia, i.e. the world that Abraham came from originally, that tell alternative versions of the creation account. Some of them actually have some striking similarities with the Genesis account in the way that they're told. But one of the biggest and most fundamental differences between Genesis and between all of those accounts is that creation was the work of one God. You probably didn't even think about it as we were reading it. But if you were told to read Genesis side by side with, say, the Enuma Elish, which is a Babylonian tale, that would be the most obvious difference. In the ancient world, every culture believed that the world was ruled over by a pantheon of gods, some who may have been created by other gods or simply come into being from pre-existing material of some kind. So, for example, in the Enuma Elish, the waters are the beginning point, swirling in chaos, and out of them come two gods, one from the salty water, who's a god of evil, and one from the fresh water, who's a god of good, and then they go ahead and create some minor gods after that. It's actually a pretty logical way of thinking about the world. Given that there appear to be many forces in the world that can't be controlled or explained easily, physical forces like the rivers and the seas, but also intangible forces like good and evil as well. Well, one way of explaining that is to say that there are invisible but real powers operating behind the scenes. And given that many of these forces seem to be in competition with each other, creating chaos and destruction and calamity, well, that must mean that there are many gods who are having to compete with one another for power, a little bit like human kings and emperors have to do. As you read on through the creation myths of the Babylonians, invariably the gods are having to fight one another to gain power. 
In one of the accounts, the god Marduk manages to fight his way to the top, and so many of the Babylonians worshipped him as their sort of uh, patron saint, if you like, hoping that he would be the one who would remain in charge. It makes sense, doesn't it? It explains why the world is full of chaotic forces that seem beyond everybody's control. But Genesis presents us with a fundamentally different picture. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, we're told that God created the heavens and the earth, and that the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. He doesn't come out of the chaotic primordial water. He sits above it. And he doesn't compete with other deities. It's just him. Every stage of creation in Genesis chapter 1 is his idea, his work, his will. He executes every bit with effortless power, totally unopposed by any rivals, totally in control of the matter that's before him. He creates form where there was no form or void. He creates light where there was only darkness and separates the two. He creates order in the midst of the chaotic waters and transforms some into the clouds and some into the seas and separates them and makes dry land. It all begins with him and nobody competes with him and he executes it with absolute power. One of the uh, catchy little quotes that Richard Dawkins liked to use, I know Richard Dawkins has gone out of fashion a little bit, but he's still got some great little sound bites. One of the ones that uh, he used to use back in the day was to say that uh, Christians are actually mostly atheists. Uh, we're all atheists about most of the gods that humanity has ever believed in, and atheists just go one god further. Um, it's it's not the world's best argument for atheism, I don't think. But he is right that we are atheists with regards to most of the gods that societies have believed in. That's why Genesis is so radically different from the Babylonian myths that presumably Abraham would have been familiar with. But why is it necessary that we know that the world was all made by one god? Why is that essential knowledge for the Abraham story later on? Well, one of the main reasons is because the Abraham narrative, which begins in chapter 12, begins with God making some massive promises to him. No need to turn to it now, but let me summarize. He promises that Abraham's children will be his chosen nation. He promises that he has a plan for them. He promises that he will bless them and bless the world through them. It's a huge, big, global plan. Now, if God was simply one God among many who's kind of fought his way to the top, a bit like Marduk, how do you know he'll be able to fulfill such a promise? You don't, do you? Not really. What if one of the other gods comes along and becomes even more powerful and topples his empire? If the gods in heaven are really just like the human kings on earth, then you can be pretty sure that no matter how secure one of the gods appears to be, sooner or later, another one will bump him off. The Babylonians may have believed that Marduk was top dog, and the empire that they believed that he had given them was certainly a formidable one. But eventually the Medes and the Persians came along, and Marduk appeared to be unable to stop them and their gods. But if it's one god, and he made everything, well, suddenly you have a lot more confidence that he'll succeed in what he says and what he promises, don't you? You can be certain that some other god won't come along and unseat him, if he's the only one and it all came from him. And so what does Moses tell the children around the campfire? 
that the God who called their great-great-great-grandfather Abraham is not some local deity of some kind fighting his way to the top, but the one true God, the one who told the stars where to go. What does that mean? Well, it's very simple. It means that they can trust that he is powerful enough to fulfill the promises that he's made to them. One true God who made heaven and earth. He said, let there be light, and light did what it was told. It didn't need to be coerced into appearing. It didn't need to be wrestled out of the hands of a minor deity. It all just happened effortlessly at the command of God. What does that mean, children? It means that our God is the strongest. It means that we can trust him, just like he showed us back in Egypt. Later on in the Bible, in the prophet Isaiah, God says, My word will not come back to me empty. It shall accomplish everything which I purpose for it. Of course it will. If this is the one God who told creation to exist, and it did, well, of course his word will accomplish what he says. And so later on in the story, when God calls Abraham and makes promises to him, you don't need to guess how this is going to work out. Of course he will succeed if he's the one true God who made everything. And further on in the story, when Moses has to confront Pharaoh, and Pharaoh laughs that he's never heard of this God of the Hebrews and doesn't think much of him, you don't need to guess how this is going to work out. Of course he'll succeed if he's the one true God who made everything. And further on in the story, when this God channels all of his very being to dwell in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, you don't need to guess how this is going to work out. Of course he will succeed if he's the one true God who made everything. Is it any surprise that he can't be stopped by the Egyptian gods when he says that he's going to rescue the Hebrew slaves out of Pharaoh's hand? No, he sends 10 plagues and he brings them out of their metaphorical grave. Is it any surprise that he can't be stopped by the Pharisees and the scribes who conspire to put Jesus to death? No, he destroys their temple and leads Jesus out of the literal grave. Will it be any surprise when he judges between nations and ensures that Jesus is acknowledged as king over all at some point in the future? No, it won't be, not if Genesis 1 is true. This is the refrain that the Bible comes back to again and again and again, that there's one God who made heaven and earth, and he holds all the cards. And therefore, all his plans and purposes for the world, which is what the rest of the Bible is about, will succeed. Because who is there to challenge him? All the other gods that the nations used to worship are actually just idols. There's no real deity behind the images of the gods that they create. The forces of nature are not controlled by many gods who have to be placated. Fortune and misfortune are not the result of schemes of some minor deity of some kind. They are all within the absolute authority of the one true God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might, as Moses tells the whole congregation in Deuteronomy chapter 6, and probably tells the children around the campfire as well. The Lord our God is one. Now, of course, you might be thinking, well, we left polytheism behind quite a long time ago. Not that many people in the West, at least, believe that there are many gods up there in the heavens who are all competing uh, with one another. Interestingly, uh, sorry, increasingly, most people are doing what Richard Dawkins suggested and getting rid of all of them, which is true. But that doesn't make the forces of chaos in the world disappear. The world remains an unpredictable and chaotic place, whether you believe that they are real deities fighting behind the scenes or whether it's all just sort of happening. For example, uh, Louis Oakes, who's uh, operating the desk at the back, is planning a wedding 
uh, in a little while. And I'm prepared to bet that he's not going to make an offering to Ra, the Egyptian sun god, so that he gets good weather on the day. He's not planning that. That's good. Two years of uh, discipleship work have not been wasted. Um, but that doesn't mean that the weather is going to be predictable. I mean, you know, maybe if he made an offering to the god of EasyJet to fly him somewhere hot, that it might be. But in the UK, we have no idea how the weather's going to work out. Or maybe an offering, uh, sorry, or, or to take a more serious example, we may not believe that there is a god called Poseidon anymore, but that doesn't stop tsunamis appearing, does it? Ironically, although Dawkins recommends ditching all the gods entirely, if you move from one to zero, you sort of end up where the polytheists were, certainly with regards to any sense of ultimate authority or purpose over the world. There's a sense in which atheism is really just polytheism without the gods. Because for the polytheist and the atheist, the world has no real sense of ultimate authority or purpose. In fact, it's striking how similar the Babylonian myth, the Enuma Elish, is to a kind of atheistic view of creation. In the one, there's a sort of primordial water to begin with that simply exists without explanation, and out of it two gods arise that represent forces of good and evil, and they compete, and who knows whether there'll be any ultimate outcome or the world will just sort of go round in cycles. In the other, there's some sort of quantum vacuum to begin with, and then forces and matter arise out of that, and they push and pull against each other, and who knows whether there'll be any ultimate outcome or whether the world will just sort of go round in cycles. The universe we observe has precisely the properties we would expect if there is at bottom no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. That's another great Dawkins quote. And the ancient Babylonian would probably basically agree. Blind, pitiless indifference describes the pantheon of gods quite well. But they might hedge their bets on Marduk just to be on the safe side and see how it works out. Under either view, the world remains at the mercy of forces that we can't explain and can't control with no sense of ultimate purpose, whether those forces have real minds behind them or not. But if there is one God who made heaven and earth, then that changes everything. The world is not ultimately under the forces of chaos. If there is one God and everything does what he wants, well, then we're in a fundamentally different ballpark. The world always was and always has been subject to the word of God. He speaks stuff and it happens. Genesis 1, the prologue, sets that foundation in place for us. Now, of course, that raises difficult questions just as much as it solves others. Let's not be naive about that. If you're a polytheist or an atheist, at least you have a way of explaining why the world is chaotic, either because there's lots of people in charge behind the scenes or because there's nobody in charge behind the scenes. If there's one God who holds all of the cards, why is the world full of chaos and evil and that sort of thing? Obviously, the story is a little bit more complicated than it first appears. And we'll unpack a little bit more of that over the next couple of weeks, although there may be some questions that we just don't have an answer to. But one thing we can be absolutely confident about is that the world is not basically random at heart. It's all subject to the word of God. It always was and it always will be. The command of the Lord. Now, there are many implications that we could draw out of all of this. And Obviously, um, confidence in the one God and his purposes is one of them. But I want to end by drawing out another one, which is also very important, which is this. That Genesis 1 puts God in his proper place. 
We often have an embarrassingly small view of God. It's so easy to treat him as if he's a bit like an invisible human. And we forget how completely transcendent he must be if he created the heavens and the earth and how incredibly small and insignificant in comparison we are. We easily slip into thinking that God's a bit like one of the pantheon of pagan gods who can be kind of manipulated into doing what you want. The pagan myths are full of the gods getting themselves into a myth, uh, a mess and then humans have to come along and bail them out and then they get rewarded with immortality or riches or whatever it is. And we can easily drift into a kind of thinking that's a little bit like that as well. One example of this is it's so easy to get into the mindset that God kind of owes us stuff. Have you ever found yourself thinking, well, you know, I've been coming along to church or serving as a Christian in these sorts of ways for this many years, and I've given up this, and I've given up that. So it's about time he gives me X, or makes my life better in area Y. You fill in the blanks. No, no, God doesn't owe us anything. He never has done. Even if we catch ourselves and say, well, I shouldn't think that way, because he's shown me grace in the death of the Lord Jesus. So really, I'm still in his debt. Well, that's true, but that's not the reason that God doesn't owe us anything. The reason that God doesn't owe us anything is because he's God. Because he owns the heavens and the earth. I remember listening to uh, that interview with Stephen Fry where he was asked what he would say if he met God after he died. And he had this sort of whole lecture prepared about kind of um, suffering and various injustices as he saw it, uh, many of which we may resonate with and kind of understand. But I remember thinking as I watched it, uh, I don't think you'll say anything to God at all when you meet him in judgment. You know, nobody's going to stand and lecture God about how he should have run the universe. There's not going to be any talking at all. It doesn't matter what grievances we think we might have had. This is the God who made the heavens and the earth. Your very cognitive functions are themselves a product of his word. He commanded everything to be. Your own mind was a part of that. God is not some minor deity to be bargained with. This always has been and always will be his show and his show alone. God is the one and only God. He gets to do whatever he likes, whatever he likes. That's absolutely axiomatic about who God is. And nobody gets to tell him otherwise. And sometimes we need to remind ourselves of that and have some humility. Now, he's a generous God who gives us good things, certainly. And we're going to see more of that over the next couple of weeks. He's a God with a good purpose for us and for the world. We're going to see so much more of that. But we need to begin by remembering who he really is. One God who made heaven and earth. He doesn't owe us anything. He never has. This has always been his show and his show alone. Well, I'm sure there's plenty more implications that we could discuss just from this first part of chapter one, but time is up for this week. Next week, we're going to think a little bit more about the goodness of the world that God has made from the rest of chapter one. For now, let me pray to finish with. Heavenly Father, forgive us when we have a small view of you and treat you as if you are some kind of minor God. Help us to remember that you always have and always will have absolute authority over the world that you made. And we pray that you would give us a right and proper humility before you. And we thank you, Heavenly Father, that we can also trust you because you stand unopposed and you will carry out all your plans. And in Jesus' name we pray.
Amen.